Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Dwight McKee, MD, and host Michael Lerner. This is part one of a two-part conversation titled Integrative Approaches to COVID-19. Dwight McKee, welcome back to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you, Michael. It's such a joy to be with you again. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, in the course of this conversation about your uh, really pioneering 50 years of research and clinical exploration of integrative cancer therapies. Uh, but we're also going to be talking about uh, uh, innovative responses to COVID-19. And indeed, I'd like to start with COVID-19 since it's so topical for all of us. But first of all, just to give our listeners and viewers a sense of who you are, I'd really like to start with a, uh, a brief uh, description of your uh, biography. Um, My journey? Yes. You are uh, board certified in medical oncology, hematology, nutrition, and integrative and holistic medicine. You graduated in the MD-PhD program at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. Completed That's not quite accurate. I was in it for three years, did all the graduate courses, did a year of research, didn't write a PhD thesis, finished my MD at University of Kentucky in 1975. Oh, okay. Thank you for the correction. You uh, then did an uh, internship at Washington Hospital Center, and then you became Associate Medical Director of Integral Health Services in Putnam, Connecticut, which is our first connection in a way because that was yep. part of the Integral Yoga community, which mm -hmm. we have both been engaged in. Uh, and Integrative Health Services was the first integrative medicine clinic on the East Coast. Over the next 12 years, you studied and practiced nutrition and mind-body medicine with a wide range of complementary uh, medical disciplines. And then through uh, working with cancer patients in your practice, you became increasingly interested in cancer medicine. And that led you in 1998 to return to hospital-based postgraduate training. 1989. Oh, okay. Actually, 88. Yeah. The, the bio that I have of you is simply slightly inaccurate. It's from one of, of the websites. Thank you for the correction. Uh, uh, at Los Angeles County Hospital. And then you completed a three-year fellowship in hematology and oncology at Scripps Clinic in La Jolla and became board certified in both disciplines. You were also a visiting scientist at the Scripps Research Institute Immunology Division for two years. Um, You've been a, a real pioneer in the development of integrative cancer care, uh, creating a synthesis between conventional cancer medicine and alternative complementary medicine. And in 2003, you became board certified in nutrition by the Certification Board for Nutrition Specialists of the American College of Nutrition. You also became board certified in integrative and holistic medicine through the American Board of Holistic Medicine. Um, and um, since 2001, this brings us up to the present, you have served as scientific director of Life Plus International in Batesville, Arkansas. You co-authored a text on interactions between drugs, nutrients, and botanicals. 
and you've served on the expert committee of the Institute for Functional Medicine Symposium on Cancer and organized yearly cancer strategy symposia since 2011. Um, uh, you since edited- 2015. Uh, since, since 2015? Yeah. 2011 through 2015. Through 2015, thank I you. I had to renew my oncology boards and I couldn't do both. I got it. <laughs> Uh, you also edited Cancer Strategies Journal, uh, and uh, your experience in, in medical research, nutritional science, immunology, chemistry, oncology, and complementary medicine have made you authentically one of the most knowledgeable researchers and clinicians uh, in this critical field. So apologies for the mistakes. They were actually in the bio I found for you online, so I can't take full credit for that. <laughs> you know, things have a way of transmuting online. Right. So let's start uh, with uh, what is before us all right now as we speak on January 25th, 2021. Uh, we are in this global COVID-19 pandemic. Um, the uh, vaccines are uh, in distribution. I just got my first shot two days ago, uh, but the variants are challenging the vaccines and more and more are emerging. And um, there's an open question of whether the vaccines can uh, keep up with the variants. Um, uh, but more than that, we also know this won't be the last viral pandemic. And so uh, mm -hmm. the question emerges as to whether uh, these incredibly expensive uh, vaccines, which will never be fully uh, distributed to the global south or to poor people everywhere, to say nothing of people who, who really don't want to take vaccines for mm -hmm. various either good or not good reasons, um, uh, uh, the question arises whether there are other strategies. Uh, and since you and I have been involved in integrative medicine for about 50 years, both of us, uh, and we have seen that very often there are strategies uh, both in integrative medicine and complementary medicine, but also in repurposed drugs and off-label drugs. So in a recent conversation, you alerted me to the role of, uh, potential role of ivermectin uh, in COVID-19. And we are in the midst of co-creating a little research group exploring that. Um, but then this morning, you circulated to me a, a new article on colchicine which I actually take, it's a gout medication that shows some promise uh, in a UK study that a colleague of ours funded uh, to help with COVID. So as we think about the research question before us, I'm beginning to wonder whether a single focus on ivermectin and ivermectin cocktails and COVID-19 is the best strategy or whether as we form this little research group, we should expand it a little to, to speak about innovative strategies for COVID-19 and future viral pandemics. 
So I'm asking you in live time uh, this question of whether mm -hmm. our focus on ivermectin, which we'll come back to, is the best focus or whether we should ask about um, innovative strategies, including but not limited to ivermectin and ivermectin cocktails, but also staying open to new repurposed drugs or new uh, integrative strategies that we may learn about. And then the question is, is there a reasonable likelihood or a possibility that beyond COVID-19, as other viral pandemics come our way, that some of these broader spectrum strategies may be useful? So I know that's a very long start, but I just wanted to put it on. Good question. Go for it. Well, you know, I would first like to say that the term global pandemic is also, and um, I think what's really in large parts fueling the virulence of this virus is the global panic about it. Because everyone is in such a state of fear because of the internet, because of 24 seven news services, all of these things that have developed since the, you know, the last time that there was anything approaching a pandemic. I mean, there really wasn't, it's since the 1918 influenza. But if you, if you went back, say five years or to whenever the last time we had a bad flu season with about 100,000 um, deaths, mostly in elderly and immunosuppressed people, and you put it on the news and you reported every, you know, the incidents and everything about this terrible flu season and created a global panic about influenza, we could probably quadruple the death toll from influenza. But we all accept influenza as a fact of life. It's been with us for a long time. There was this pandemic that killed 50 million people in 1918. So we're not there yet with COVID. Um, but we also didn't have the, the resources that we do now. And when you look back in history, the uh, people who were treated with homeopathy did much better. I mean, we didn't have great record keeping, but people have gone back and looked at, at things in the 1918 pandemic, which is essentially what ended World War I. Because, you know, it was just going through the, the armies and nobody could sustain could sustain war in, in the midst of it. Um, <clears throat> the fear that has been created around COVID-19 has put so many people into an overdrive of the sympathetic nervous system. You know, our, our autonomic nervous system, which runs all of our unconscious processes, our immune system, our blood pressure, our heart rate, our breathing, uh, it has a sympathetic uh, arm and a parasympathetic arm. And they're kind of like yin-yang. When one goes up, the other goes down, and vice versa. And the sympathetic nervous system is designed to get us out of trouble. Uh, you know, it was the, you know, the, the story of our, and of our, you know, Neolithic ancestors being chased by some powerful carnivore and getting up a tree 
So that's what the sympathetic nervous system was designed for. And it produced adrenaline for, to speed up the heart rate and get maximal um, physical uh, performance to save ourselves from some horribly dangerous situation. And it shuts down the immune system that had digestion, everything that's not, that, that consumes energy, but isn't essential to escaping from or being in battle with, a, you know, another tribe or, or a situation like that. So in modern life, when someone cuts you off on the freeway, you get an adrenaline response and your heart beats fast. And, but you don't have a physical, you know, in our evolution, that sympathetic nervous system response was designed to be followed by maximal physical activity because you're fighting or fleeing or freezing, you know, hiding. Um, and in modern times, we've divorced that sympathetic response from the physical exercise, which is one of the reasons why physical exercise is so important because we live in a stressful society that turns on our sympathetic. We're, we've got an imbalance of too much sympathetic nervous system. We turn on the news and it's, you know, there's now 400,000 deaths in the U.S. and the hospitals are full and there's no ICU beds and they're leaving patients on the streets of Manhattan or L.A., it scares everybody and it just accentuates this imbalance we have of the sympathetic nervous to relax and allow our immune system to be functioning optimally, not our muscles and our lungs and our heart. Um, the parasympathetic nervous system, we, you know, we refer to it as resting and digesting and immuning, immunizing us. It immunizes us dramatically um, because the immune system is what begins to protect us from birth. We inherit the microbiome from our, from our mother predominantly. And we're now learning the complex interplay between that microbiome, which we've de decimated in the Western world with antibiotics, both therapeutic and antibiotics used in, in agriculture, in animal production, because it makes animals grow faster. And we've developed a food system that is so out of balance with nature. Um, we have so many... Um, kind of accumulating insults, environmental toxins, and, you know, there's EMF everywhere, and we don't really know what that's doing. But each one of these things is um, just adding to the total load of stress, lifestyle stress, environmental toxin stress, uh, EMF stress, the stress of not being adequately nourished because we've industrialized the food supply We've invented chemical agriculture, which replaces potassium um, and nitrogen and phosphorus in the soil, but we stopped composting. We stopped 
returning the, you know, the things that we don't finish, uh, the, the remnants of our food crops used to be composted. You know, 100 years ago, everything was organic. There was no such thing as non-organic food. Um, my grandparents grew up on organic food. My parents grew up on organic food. That all started to change around World War II. You know, you and I were born in that uh, sort of um, pre-war, post-war, baby boom uh, generation. And we were the first ones to really grow up with processed foods. And then the industrialization of our food supply just really took off with mega agribusiness um, in the last 30, 40 years and mega food processing. And it's all been aimed at efficiency of production of food, having enough food, but no concern about the nutritional quality of it. And then the food processing has been all aimed at taste, eye appeal, and stability. No attention paid to nutritional content. And that's what, into my mind, has burst the burgeoning nutritional supplement industry as kind of an unconscious or collective conscious immune response kind of to the, the, the removal of so many essential micronutrients from our food supply that we now get them in pills and capsules and tinctures and powders and you know, blend them into smoothies and, and so forth. And this is a great deal of what integrated medicine is based on is really restoring the nutrients. And that's an evolving science. We don't understand it fully. We know that when we're carrying the levels of lead and mercury that we're carrying, we get mercury from, you know, eating um, seafood. We get, we grew up in the era of uh, leaded gasoline, which again made, you know, cars more efficient, but wholesale polluted the environment. You know, Proposition 65 was, was passed in California, very well-meaning legislation. <clears throat> and it uh, required that uh, a food not introduce more than a um, half a milligram of lead per day. And they had to then, then they realized that there's nothing grown in soil that will pass that test. There's more lead just because of leaded gasoline and the decades and decades of cars and truck exhaust burning leaded gasoline that has um, so filled the soil with lead, which has filled the food supply with lead, that they had to pass legislation exempting fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds from that. But they didn't exempt nutritional supplements from that. So if you market a nutritional supplement in California and it has any plant-derived extracts or concentrates, it's going to exceed the Proposition 65 lead level and you have to put a little label on it, um, which all, you know, all produce would require had they not passed legislation exempting that. The point I'm getting to is that we are living in a brave new world. And um, we definitely need, as our 
friend and colleague, uh, Cynthia Lee, has recently written a brave new medicine for this brave new world. It's a new ballgame, and no one understands it completely. There is, there's new data every day. There's a whole 30, 40 years of research on the biological effects of EMF, and practicing physicians, you know, we have no clue about it. There's, you know, a, a burgeoning um, illness called mast cell activation syndrome that has been only named and noted since the, the, uh, the mid-2000s, 2007, 2008, um, is starting to come into uh, more awareness there's uh, a, a few hundred uh, practitioners that I participate with online whose entire practices are taking care of these people. Who are the canaries in the coal mine? You know, we, when, when coal mines were <clears throat> really the primary industry to produce coal for heat and steam and all of these things, there were pockets of methane which would kill the miners and they learned to carry canaries down into the in little cages and if the canary dropped off its perch, they knew they needed to get the hell out of there because they were going to drop off their perch next. So these sensitive people who are electromagnetic sensitive, who are um, mast cell sensitive, and those two things may be related um, because 20 years ago, there was something described called um, uh, uh, what did they used to call uh, computer monitors. Um, computer screens? Yeah, yeah. I think it was just called screen uh, screen dermatitis. Oh, yeah. That people would, would get. And it was it was described, it was researched on at um, the Karolinska Institute um, over 20 years ago. And they took a, 100 healthy people and they did skin biopsies. And then they had them sit in front of of um, the television Monitor. screen, monitors, TV at that time. Huh. Yeah, yeah. I think it what might have been called monitor uh, dermatitis or or screen dermatitis. <clears throat> so people were starting to develop this, and they took a hundred healthy people, exposed them for two hours, and then took skin biopsies, and fifteen percent of them had degranulation of their mast cells. Now, mast cells, I should probably. Uh, go back a, a bit, are a, a primary cell of the innate immune system. Our immune system has the innate part, which reacts automatically to any perceived threat. And when the innate immune system starts going off inappropriately, then we develop chronic inflammatory diseases, and those often become autoimmune diseases, depending on your genetics. And the... Um, the prevalence of mast cell activation syndrome based on uh, uh, one of the German pioneers who studied the mutations of the KIT receptor on the mast cell is about 15%. And 20, oh, over 20 years ago, they found that 15% of 100 healthy people exposed to a TV monitor of that era for two hours degranulated their mast cells. So there's evidence that, you know, populations of people who become chronically ill 
we really need to study them because they are the canaries in our coal mine. We're living in this giant coal mine that we're all working in called Earth. Um, we're in the Earth mine. And we have impacted the environment and the food supply and the lifestyle so dramatically that it's a completely new ballgame. And the, you know, the physicians that we describe as integrative, um, who are basically taking the old medicine of, of, of diet and nutrition and herbs and lifestyle and blending it with allopathic medicine, which has been developed through the huge uh, and, and burgeoning um, resources of the medical and the pharmaceutical industry to put, these, to put the old and the new together. And I see integrated medicine as a model that we need to um, start doing in many other realms. We need integrative agriculture, putting together the tenets of biodynamic agriculture, organic agriculture with agribusiness. We have to um, have uh, integrative um, um, food processing to find ways that preserve and maximize and um, augment the nutrient value of the food as opposed to just taste, eye appeal, and shelf life. <clears throat> we need to start you know, harvesting grains and seeds and so forth and getting them dry as quickly as possible or so that they don't mold. We've got toxic molds growing on our foods. We've got toxic molds growing in our buildings. And my family has been dramatically impacted by a toxic mold, that situation that happened at my son's private high school. In, uh, in 2010 or 11, a leaky roof, drywall became wet wall, and uh, toxic molds like to grow in drywall. And 10 or 20 years ago, the paint companies started putting in things to discourage mold growth on uh, what we call drywall. And that just, when mold starts to grow in it, it just sends danger signals to the mold. So they put out all their armamentarium and they make more toxins. And there's a, you know, there's a huge problem with toxic mold um, induced illness, which is not yet recognized in the mainstream medicine. And, and it also is a major um, <clears throat> trigger to causing uh, mast cell activation syndrome in the sensitive population. And COVID-19 is a major stress in people who have the genetics and the acquired mutations for their mast cells to be a little unstable. And we're seeing that as post-COVID syndrome. And there's tr it's tremendous overlay between the mast cell activation syndrome and the post-COVID syndrome. And it may actually be the post-COVID syndrome that puts mast cell activation syndrome on the map. And, and speaking of the COVID pandemic and cancer, I just saw a case report today of a person with 
stage four widely metastatic cancer who got sick with COVID, survived. The death rate's quite high in cancer patients, as you can imagine, especially if they're immunosuppressed from chemotherapy. <clears throat> um, but this patient had a complete disappearance. Their PET scan went completely from lighting up all over the place to go completely uh, no evidence of cancer after recovering from COVID. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Dwight McKee and host Michael Lerner. So, brings up, might COVID, might this coronavirus be what we call an oncolytic virus? You know, maybe it'll turn out to be a tool that we can use in the right dose, you know. Uh, That famous um, uh, quote from the mid-1900s, it's the dose that makes the difference between a medicine and a poison. Right. Um, so, the, the repurpose, I view the repurposing of drugs like ivermectin, which may well be the most active medicine, oral medicine, certainly, um, against COVID, I see that as, a, as an emergency stopgap measure. You know, we need a way to treat COVID before people are admitted to the hospital. We need a way to prevent them from being admitted to the hospital. And the very little uh, experience that I have personally and the larger experience that I have with my colleagues which were in communication over the internet is that very early treatment of, of COVID with ivermectin uh, dramatically modifies the course. I mean, it'll take large studies, and I hope they are done. Um, but as a ivermectin is a you know it's an antiparasitic medicine. Uh, it was the subject of the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 2015. It was developed in 1975. It came from a sample of uh, Japanese soil. It was co-developed by a scientist at Merck with the Japanese scientist who first isolated it. And uh, it has been so widely used in the tropics, Merck has donated billions of tablets over the past decades to the poor tropical countries where parasites are a huge problem. And uh, it's nearly eliminated river blindness, um, which is a parasite in the eye. And only because of, uh, of the, uh, I think actually a little before the COVID pandemic, it was noted that it does have antiviral effects and it turns out to be a pretty broad spectrum antiviral and a very active antiviral <clears throat> against COVID. It was first published by a group in Australia back in, I think, April or May of 2020 that it was quite active in, in vitro, meaning you know, in the laboratory, but the concentration was far higher than anything that we would likely be able to achieve clinically, even though ivermectin is a very non-toxic, very well-tolerated drug. But at the same, do- similar doses, or even twice the dose, they've done uh, phase one clinical trials going up to 10 times the dose. The, the antiparasitic dose is about two-tenths of a milligram per kilo of body weight. They went up to two milligrams, which is 10 times that dose, and didn't see 
a lot of toxicity. So there's a lot of leeway. Nobody really knows what's the optimal dose, what's the optimal schedule. We just know that there's large areas of, of, of South America that have just embraced using ivermectin for COVID, large areas of India. There's a state in India that has given uh, ivermectin out free to all of its residents or whatever they want, and people caught on that it helps in COVID. They have 250 million people in that state, and their death rate from COVID is 164th that of the United States. And they don't have ICUs. They barely have hospitals. They have a lot of ivermectin. So, I mean, I see repurposed drugs like ivermectin and colchicine as very important tools to be used to help us get through this pandemic without collapsing our, you know, our healthcare system. But it is not a long-term strategy, neither are vaccines. You know, we, we're never going to be able to vaccinate our way through this pandemic, that pandemic. And I think this pandemic is really teaching us, it's really showing us what bad shape we're in globally. And particularly what bad shape we're in in the United States, where 40, you know, 40 percent of the population is medically obese and some some 60 or 70 percent of the population are overweight. Um, And that alone makes people more vulnerable to this virus. Um, Most people who are overweight have some degree of insulin resistance. They there's an increasing burgeoning. Uh, type 2 diabetes, which when managed allopathically is a very expensive disease. But when managed by diet and lifestyle, you can make type 2 diabetes go away in almost everybody. So, um, you know, we have, I think this, this pandemic, this global panic around the pandemic is showing us the degree of trouble that we're in. And we really need to reevaluate on many, many levels our priorities. You know, are we going to just have a medical industry that is based on profit as the, as the major driver of medical care? Or are we going to start paying attention to what works in this new ball game, this new world, this new coal mine that we're all working in. And we really need to start studying the canaries. We, I mean, that's what the MCAS physicians, there's, you know, several hundred people trying to help the several million people who have, uh, I mean, they're working with the more severe end of the spectrum. You know, I said it's about 15% of the population have the underlying genetics. And then if you're triggered by a mold, uh, a, a toxic mold, um, uh, environmental toxicity, or a COVID challenge, and you come out of it with post-COVID syndrome, because your immune system just never recovers and your mast cells keep firing, mast cells are amazing cells and they have all these 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 granules that the name uh was meant it, 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 from latin means that, that they are, are well nourished 
because you look under the microscope and you see all these little these little uh, granules in them. And inside those granules, or at least uh, we used to think there was 200 uh, inflammatory mediators, histamine being the best known one, that number is, is escalating all the time. There's, there's nearly a thousand inflammatory mediators that have been identified in, uh, in mast cells. And they can be in any tissue of the body. They tend to congregate where there's an interface between the environment and the body. So you'll find them lining the, the, the nose and the sinuses and the GI tract and the lungs because these are places that our, our bodies are interfacing with the environment. And if you get a clone, so you, get a, you acquire a mutation in the mast cell that makes it unstable. And it's like a, you know, it's like a, a grenade with a hair trigger. They're just going off inappropriately all the time. And they release different spectrums, which we don't understand. Uh, we don't understand all the triggers. And we don't understand... Uh, why they, you know, one would release dominantly histamine and one would dominantly release heparin. There are, you know, women who've had uh, abnormal menstrual bleeding where they're bleeding heavily for years on end. It just doesn't stop. And OBGYN doctors don't really know what to do with them. They often end up taking out their uteruses. <clears throat> um, Larry Afrin, who's one of the pioneers, the true pioneers in MCAS, um, which is our abbreviation for mast cell activation syndrome, <clears throat> discovered that uh, giving uh, a douche with Benadryl will turn off this dysfunctional bleeding in five minutes. That's been going on for months or years. And nobody would ever think of that unless they understood that there are chronic illnesses that are diagnosable by measuring elevated levels of mediators, such as histamine, such as heparin, such as um, prostaglandin D2 and E3. Um, and it's a difficult disease to diagnose because many of the mediators are very heat labile. And so if the laboratory that's processing the sample breaks the cold chain at any point, then those, uh, those heat labile mediators disappear and you get a normal result. And often you have to repeat testing, you know, three or four times. It's like, you know, you know, this patient must have mass electrician syndrome, but you haven't been able to prove it. And, you know, it, the difficulty of making the diagnosis has led many physicians, and especially in areas that <clears throat> don't have access to <clears throat> really high-level laboratories to just um, try, you know, mast cell-targeted treatment, which is, you know, basically blocking, blocking receptors for uh, histamine type 1 receptors and type 2 receptors and using various mast cell stabilizers and anti-inflammatory medications. Basically, anything that's anti-inflammatory tends to help mast cell activation syndrome because these inappropriate discharge of the mast cells are just discharging inflammatory mediators inappropriately. So um, I, I think the, you know, the mast cell, uh, the, the, the people with um, 
what we're called, what's being called in the press, long haul COVID, it's being called medically post-COVID syndrome, where people are still sick and disabled six months later with a chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia type of picture, brain fog, bone crushing fatigue, feeling like they can't take a deep breath even though their oxygen saturations are normal, <clears throat> these types of things. They respond to ivermectin, which turns out is very likely a potent mast cell stabilizer. And they respond to mast cell activation syndrome targeted treatment. <clears throat> and as I said, that it, it may actually be that COVID-19 and the post-COVID syndrome will be turn out to be the thing that puts mast cell activation syndrome on the map as a real medical entity that, that eventually becomes accepted. 30 years ago, when I was first starting to study what became functional medicine, we were all talking about leaky gut. And, you know, it took about 20, 25 years for that concept to really get into the mainstream. But I think that process is accelerating, largely because of the web um, and the, the enhanced communication that we, that we now have. So I think that that latency for a, a new idea that is true to become accepted in, in, in mainstream medical circles is going to and, and it needs to shorten because we're, you know, we're chasing a moving target. Our environment's changing. It's, and, and um, not for the better. Right. First of all, thank you for this. Um, response that was uh, more than adequate to the complicated question that I began with. But let me just summarize. Let's, let's just summarize a few of the things that you talked about. Uh, the first thing you, I just want to summarize. The first thing you talked about was the role of panic in the pandemic and how uh, panic itself affects the central nervous system and uh, and the immune system and uh, and and it can really be contributing in a very significant way uh, to uh, mortality and morbidity from the pandemic. The second thing that you then went into was all the different um, contributors to the weakening of uh, human biological structures of, of uh, poor diet, uh, stress, uh, EMF, uh, all the different stressors that we're living with. That, even when it's good diet. Even when it's good diet. That's what I used to. That all the different stressors that contribute to our vulnerability to a wide range of things. Uh, then the third thing you talked about was uh, mast cell activation. And as we know, this is a subject that our colleague Mark Reniker uh, has uh, brought together uh, a, a community Mark of people. Key in getting yeah. Larry Afrin connected to this community of, of right. uh, physicians. And in fact, uh, there were conferences at Commonweal, I think at least two, on mast cell activation. The first one. Yeah, the first one. And uh, so, so we're familiar with that. And then we began to touch on ivermectin as uh, perhaps a, a key uh, medicine, repurposed medicine, 
potentially for COVID-19. And the relationship between COVID-19 and mast cell activation and the possibility that the long haulers who are not recovering from COVID-19 may have the same uh, genetic signatures and responses that the mast cell patients have. So that's kind of a little summary of some of the themes that may want to go back through it. But uh, as we come uh, toward the end of the first part of this um, segment, and then we're going to turn to your cancer work, I want to come back to a strategy question that I asked you at the beginning, which is that we've just begun to form a little ivermectin research group because if ivermectin proves to be as effective as you and I think it may be, the implications for the pandemic are just extraordinary. And I was not looking for another subject to be involved with. But like you, after 50 years of looking at integrative therapies, and you know, I've probably looked at 100, and you've looked at many hundreds, uh, you come to see, understand the signatures uh, that make something look particularly promising. And I think we both agree that ivermectin seems to have that signature. And yet, uh, there's so far, there is no profit motive for uh, the major pharmaceutical companies to research ivermectin. And while NIH has recently shifted its statement on ivermectin from don't do this to uh, neutral uh, needs further research, uh, um, it is in effect being slow walked com- com- compared to you know, the incredible effort that's going into other areas. So here we have this very cheap, safe, globally distributed, uh, won the Nobel Prize for its antiparasitic work, uh, medicine, which could make a dramatic difference if it proves to be as effective as we believe it might. And, um, and research on it is being slow walked. And so for me, that is my motivation. So the question that I asked you at the start is twofold. As we bring this little group together, there are many reasons to stay focused on ivermectin because it makes life simpler. But at the same time, then culture scene comes in from left field and God knows what else will come in from left field or right field. And so I'm wondering whether we should expand our focus to uh, innovative, overlooked uh, approaches, both from complementary medicine and repurposed drugs that we think deserve more attention. That's point one. And then point two is, since we know that the variants of COVID-19 are going to keep changing and the vaccines are going to keep rushing to keep up, and then there will be other viral pandemics afterward, are the kinds of remedies and prophylaxis and treatment strategies that we're talking about, are they more likely to be effective with future viral pandemics, or is it totally a crapshoot as to whether they will be uh, effective or not? So those two questions, should we expand the target and with respect to variants 
and with respect to future viral pandemics, is it likely that there will be promise in things like ivermectin for a variant or completely different viral pandemics? Well, Michael, it's my hope that we will collectively um, learn some of the lessons being taught by this pandemic, that it is our innate resilience and our immune protection that um, has failed, which created this pandemic. There's also, you know, the, the twist of a new virus, you know. Uh, thank God Ebola is not person-to-person -person transmissible the way uh, COVID is, because we'd really be scrambling with, you know, something that has a 50% uh, death rate. Um, so as we you know, do the things that humans do collectively, we're likely to release or just, you know, inadvertently open a box that turns out to be Pandora's box that we can't close again. <clears throat> um, and the best way, in my view, that we could compare our, prepare ourselves collectively to prevent the next pandemic is to start changing the way we're producing our food, the foods we're choosing to, produ to, to produce and consume, and the, the medical approaches, the healing approaches that we are supporting and furthering through research and development and clinical um, clinical discovery, clinical implementation. Um, you know, functional medicine practitioners are also having success just applying the basic concepts of functional medicine. Uh, uh, I heard an interview recently with between Cynthia Lee and Mark Hyman, and Mark refer refer referred to functional medicine as inflammology. That, you know, we're... We basically, and it's inflammation, and it's runaway inflammation that is lethal, the lethal uh, aspect of COVID. When the immune system responds suboptimally, then it ends up pulling out all the plugs and just, you get the cytokine storm, and um, that killed a lot of people. Now they've, you know, discovered that you can't, when that happens, you can use dexamethasone, um, inexpensive steroid medication to rescue some people from that, although it would seem counterintuitive because that also suppresses the immune system. But when the immune system is just pulling out all its stops and blowing, you know, it's like the fireworks display all going off at once instead of one at a time, changing from, you know, an entertainment to a disaster, um, that you have to do things like that. Um, so I think that there, you know, there are so many lessons that we can take away from this global 
experience, which is the first time that humanity has experienced something like this in a setting where we have global communication. The 1918 pandemic in which, according to our best estimates, 50 million people died, we we had telegraphs. Did we have telephones? 1918. I don't. I don't remember. I, 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 it was it was primitive anyway. So, um, you know, news traveled by carrier pigeon and um, and things like this. So it, it's it's a you know the, the the Chinese word for crisis um, translates danger and opportunity. And we're in a crisis, and there is danger, and there is opportunity. And the opportunity is to take a hard look at what we're doing, at how we're living, at how we're trying to heal each other, and start to focus on what works instead of what makes the most money. Well, I completely because agree. Because that is... Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with that, and I just want to insert here, because it's a subject that I've been studying, I'm not sure you're aware I've been studying it, but um, I, I totally agree with you that if we took a hard look at how we're living, turn to regenerative agriculture for our food supply and yes. organic regenerative agriculture, in fact, there was a major UN report that said regenerative agriculture was the way to feed the world. And um, it went on to say that, um, uh, that well, essentially that this, this is the way to feed the world. And so that is a critical thing. The other side of it is that, um, you know, the, the ecologists are telling us that we're living in an evolutionary bottleneck because of all the dozens of different global stressors that are affecting us. And only a relatively small portion of biodiversity is going to come through the bottleneck. And the question of whether humanity comes through the bottleneck and in what form is really unknown. And so uh, a group of us, a growing group of us, have been looking at what we call the global polycrisis and the social, environmental, technological, and financial stressors, several dozen that have combined uh, to create, which are un interacting unpredictably and are which are creating ever more rapid and more acute future shocks that are coming at us faster and faster. So the reason I bring that in right now is that the hope that we share that we could learn the lessons of the pandemic and change the way we live in positive directions faces not only the problem, problems that you've mentioned of toxics, uh, EMF, uh, poor food, uh, lack of exercise, obesity, and so on and so forth. But in fact, there are several dozen global stressors, uh, social, environmental, technological, and financial, that are interacting. And it's, it's what, in, uh, uh, what's, what Churchman called a wicked problem in the sense that uh, uh, in the sense that we don't, we don't know how to solve it. We don't know uh, how to solve it. So, so I just 
put that on the map here because learning the lessons of this and really reversing the global poly crisis is an immensely difficult task, right? And therefore, we may be stuck with fixes uh, uh, like ivermectin uh, and moving toward our long-term goals and hoping and praying that we can move toward a truly, uh, a return to, to truly humane practices. But it's, we both know what a long haul that is. And, and fixes like nutritional supplements. You know, and we know that people do so much better if they've been supplementing zinc and vitamin D and vitamin exactly. C, selenium and right. polyphenols. And what everybody can do themselves is that they can you know, choose to eat you know, 90% plants and 10% animal products or figure out what their ancestors were eating and you know, embrace that diet in its original form. You know, there's not enough organic food to feed the global population in an organic way. It is going to be, you know, a, a, a slow process. But I, I think nutritional supplements are a stopgap like ivermectin. Exactly. It's a stopgap to tide us over uh, until we can have the number of generations it will take to, to fix the global food supply, to fix the global environment, to fix the evil, wicked problem yeah. of all these global stressors that are putting themselves out in this way. You know, and people are kind of taught that, you know, you can eat whatever you want, you know, what's convenient, what you like, and then if you get sick, you go to the doctor, you take medicine, and people are just kind of asleep in that paradigm until they wake up and they have stage four cancer. So, you know, cancer was what taught me the power of fear. And that's such a perfect point to make our transition to cancer. Yeah. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Dwight McKee and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.